Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. In those years when I couldn't seem to scare up any work, I thought, oh well, I guess Ferris Bueller was my shot. Alan Ruck. Alan Ruck grew up in the largest suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, called Parma. His mother was a schoolteacher. His father worked for a pharmaceutical factory by day. By night, he was a singer. His father sang in every choir within a 20-block radius, and together the Rucks made it a priority to expose their children to the arts from a young age. They took them to see plays at the local high school, to the Cleveland Museum of Art on free nights, to concerts, and there was always a record spinning in the house. The problem was, outside those four walls, little Alan Ruck discovered his peers didn't share the same enthusiasm for the music man. He said school for him was a misery. He wasn't an athlete, he wasn't in a band, he couldn't play guitar, His family didn't have any money, so he couldn't throw the parties. He was but a choir boy, desperate for a little bit of schoolyard attention. 
In middle school, Ruck watched his older sister perform in high school plays. He marveled at her presence on stage, at her guts. So he says he tucked that observation into his back pocket. And come his own freshman year, he signed up to audition for the first play of the semester. And he got a part. Then he auditioned for another, and another, until he was cast in every production Parma High School put on that year. And Ruck realized. When he was on stage, he wielded a sort of power. A power he only dreamed of in the real world. People looked at him. And if he did his job right, they listened to him, too. Ruck said from that moment on, he clutched tightly onto that feeling. And it never really occurred to him to let it go. Ruck signed up for acting classes, where he started learning basic stagecraft. And come his senior year, he applied to the University of Illinois to study drama. And he got in. Ruck earned almost the entirety of his college education on stage. And if he wasn't front and center at U of I's performing arts complex, he was at a nearby student theater tucked inside an old armory. For 25 bucks, you could put on any play you wanted. And in 1979, Ruck graduated with a BFA in drama. The question then became, what next? Ruck knew he wanted to pursue acting, but he had zero connections in New York or Los Angeles. What he did have was the knowledge that a couple of his fellow graduates had moved to Chicago to do plays. So he packed his bags and traveled two hours north to the Windy City. Ruck describes early 80s Chicago as a very narrow, very cool window in time. Two big things were coinciding. The theater scene was just bursting. And the Chicago set Blues Brothers had just grossed $115 million at the box office. So both Hollywood and theater nerds started flocking to the city. Historically, Ruck says Chicago theater was predominantly not-for-profit. And with no money at stake, people were free to take chances, to have fun and do exciting work. And it also meant those same actors were eager for day jobs, and cheaper than their Golden State counterparts. A vast talent pool of actors meets vast feature film infrastructure, spelled a talent agent's dream. So Ruck says you could essentially walk into any agency on a Wednesday with a blank CV and a smile, and someone would sit down and talk with you. That would never happen in New York or L.A. But if the coasts were the major leagues, Chicago was the top of the minors. It was a whole different ballgame. Ruck's first few theater gigs in Chicago were characters that were much younger than he was. At the time, he was 24 years old. His characters ranged from 14 to 18, like the paperboy in Streetcar. He said he couldn't help looking infantile. It was his tiny, childlike foot in the door. Ruck performed at the Goodman, the Apollo, the Wisdom Bridge, the Drury Lane Theater— 
Then he got a role in a TV pilot, but it didn't get picked up. So Ruck's agent started booking him auditions in New York for TV and movies. But every time, he returned home jobless and even more penniless. Then, in 1983, Ruck landed a role in a major production, Bad Boys, starring Sean Penn. It was a small part, but it was his first feature film. That same year, he landed another role in Class, which starred Andrew McCarthy, Rob Lowe, Jacqueline Bissett, and John Cusack. Ruck was 26, playing an 18-year-old. Cusack was actually a teen. With that momentum, he auditioned for a biggie, John Hughes' The Breakfast Club, or as it was originally titled, The Lunch Bunch. But Ruck was rejected for the part. The movie came out, it was a massive hit. New York Magazine coined the term Brat Pack, and Ellen Ruck accepted his own new label, Brat Pack Adjacent. By 1984, money was tight. Ruck was auditioning for everything. He did land a TV pilot, but it didn't get picked up. That year, Broadway casting directors flew to Chicago to audition Young Guys for Neil Simon's semi-autobiographical play, Biloxi Blues, the story of a young army recruit during World War II. Ruck, along with every male Chicago hopeful, auditioned, But he heard nothing. For two months. Then he got a phone call from his agent. The casting people wanted him to fly to New York for a second audition. But that's when Ruck told his agent he would be RSVPing no to that invitation. He'd done this a million and one times. He gets a call back. He flies to New York. They say, thanks, but no thanks. And he flies back to O'Hare, no job, and out 300 bucks. So his agent told the Biloxi Blues people he wouldn't come to New York. And they said, look, tell him to fly himself in. And if he doesn't get the part, we'll reimburse him the 300 bucks. Well, that'll work. So Ruck flew to Manhattan. Ruck auditioned a second time for the casting agents. They were intrigued. So they told him to take a third audition scene, read it over, and come back after lunch. But this scene included a song. So, Ruck read it over, chewed his bagel, and went back. He was so nervous, his knees were knocking. So he asked to bring a chair up on stage. That way he could do the audition sitting down. He read, he sang, he sweat. Then the play's director hopped up beside him. He took a look at Ruck and said, Start singing every day. You'll get more comfortable with it. You're going to be fine. Ruck nodded. Then a casting agent leaned over to him and said, You know he's offering you the part, right? Ruck had a sneaking suspicion, but he didn't want to make a fool of himself if it wasn't true. Suddenly, Ruck was cast in a real play with a solid cast and a solid budget. 
Matthew Broderick, who at the time was coming off two other Neil Simon projects, was the star. They would play 18-year-olds. Broderick was 23, Ruck was 29. Broderick said Ruck had a James Dean look about him. The pair had the same sense of humor, and their onstage chumminess spilled over into real life. The play was a success, and that same year, Ruck married his girlfriend, Claudia. There's a scene that bookends Biloxi Blues, where the cast is on a train, and Matthew Broderick's character talks to the audience while all the other characters are asleep around him. And as he's talking, he's writing in a notebook. And one night, as he finished his monologue, Broderick nudged Ruck and tapped on his notebook. It was usually just doodles. But Ruck opened one eye, and that night Broderick had scribbled, They offered me Ferris Bueller. Should I take it? Ferris Bueller's Day Off was the latest John Hughes flick after The Breakfast Club, after Weird Science, and on the heels of Pretty in Pink. It told the story of popular high school student and righteous dude Ferris Bueller, who decides to play hooky with his girlfriend and best friend in a last-ditch effort to live a little before graduation, much to the chagrin of the school principal, who'll do almost anything to stop him. Ferris is cheeky, he's cunning, he's charismatic, he's confident. That role would be played by Broderick. The best friend, Cameron, was almost the exact opposite of Ferris in every way. He's anxious, hypochondriacal, people-pleasing, and bedridden. That role was up for grabs, so Ruck went to his agent's office. Turns out, the casting people for Ferris Bueller had already reached out to John Hughes' Brat Pack boys to fill the major roles. Anthony Michael Hall turned down Ferris before it reached Broderick, and Emilio Estevez had just turned down Cameron. Ruck wanted an audition, but the casting team said they didn't want to see him. He was too old. In all fairness, they were looking to cast the role of an 18-year-old, Ruck was more than 10 years older than that. But his agent pushed back. He reminded them that Ruck had been playing opposite Broderick convincingly every night in Biloxi Blues, a show where the characters are meant to be the same age, 18. So the casting people agreed to give Ruck an audition. And as fate would have it, they liked him. So they invited Ruck back for a second audition with Matthew Broderick and John Hughes. Having just spent nine months together every night, acting together, improvising together, laughing together, Broderick and Ruck put the chemistry in chemistry read. Ruck said they didn't have to fake a best friendship. He said they were just them. Broderick says Ruck came in and just blew John Hughes away. Everyone in the room thought he was perfect. Mia Sarah was cast as Ferris Bueller's girlfriend, Sloane, and Jennifer Grey, one year before Dirty Dancing in the Catskills, would play Ferris's exasperated little sister, Jeannie. Filming began in 1985, in and around the Chicago area. And before the film was released the following year, 
Sarah, Gray, and Ruck, along with Jeffrey Jones, who would play the vengeful principal, were shown a rough cut. And they were mortified. Ruck says, frankly, they thought it was a piece of garbage. But on June 11, 1986, Ferris Bueller's Day Off was released. And the movie made on a $5 million budget would earn $70 million worldwide, making it one of the highest-grossing films of the year. 40000 of that $70 million went straight into Alan Ruck's pocket. It was the most money he'd seen for a role. It was his first lead role, and in a major Hollywood motion picture. A John Hughes film, no less. This was the jumping-off point. The next great part was right around the corner. The question wasn't, what was he going to do? The question was, what wasn't he going to do? Or, so he thought. In the year following Ferris Bueller, Ruck's phone didn't ring. Instead, he found himself stumbling around New York. He turned 30 years old, and suddenly it was no longer believable for him to play teenagers. But yet, his youthfulness prevented him from playing believable lawyers, doctors. Ferris Bueller was his teenage swan song, and now he was stuck in babyface limbo. By 1987, he needed money, so he auditioned for a role he wasn't exactly enthusiastic about. It was a movie called Three for the Road, opposite Charlie Sheen. The script changed drastically right up until shooting. Sheen's focus had already pivoted toward his next movie, Platoon, and Ruck's heart wasn't in it. Ruck says Three for the Road turned out to be an amazing piece of garbage. The end result was underwhelming, and so was the paycheck. The next year, he did a pilot in Thailand, but it didn't go anywhere. He was starting to think, maybe Ferris Bueller was it. His shot. He was but a one-trick pony, wading into the abyss. that thought. We'll be right back. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In 1989, Ruck started flying out to L.A. for auditions. It was pilot season, the bread and butter of the hopeful actor. And his agent lined up an audition for a new comedy called Morton's by the Bay, starring Nell Carter. He auditioned for the writer and one of the producers. Then he auditioned for more producers. Then he auditioned for the studio. Then he auditioned for the network. And with each audition, he says his nerves became more and more fried. Second guessing becomes third guessing, and soon you can't tell if your lines are even funny anymore. But the next door kept opening, and by the time he reached NBC, Alan Ruck got the green light. Suddenly, everyone started congratulating him on landing a pilot that had the juice to actually make it in this uncertain business. A steady job in Hollywood wasn't exactly easy to come by. So Ruck moved his wife and their brand new baby across the country to Los Angeles, where they rented a small house. But as filming began on Morton's by the Bay, Ruck's alarm bells went off. He said the show was one thing on Monday, and by Friday it was a totally different animal. It was formless, directionless, and Ruck said... It was just bad. Needless to say, it didn't get picked up. Ruck had just spent the last of his money moving his family 3,000 miles, a cliched number for a cliched scene. A hopeful actor who moves to L.A. and banks everything on a roll that goes nowhere. He says he was old enough at that point to know better. By 1990, Ruck was 34 years old. His career had peaked high and fallen so, so low. That year's pilot season came and went, and he had rent to pay. So Ruck went to the local employment office. They said, do you have any experience in word processing? No. Any office experience whatsoever? No. He says he had no marketable skills applicable to the real world. 
But despite that fact, they found him a job at a Sears warehouse in East L.A. Ruck's new job was to sort boxes into bins. Sometimes it would be a two-ounce vase, other times a 130-pound swing set. It was exhausting work. But more exhausting were the questions he was now forced to dodge. Every so often, one of the other sorters or truck drivers would say to him, Hey, did you ever see the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? You look exactly like the guy with the dad car. Ruck told them it wasn't him. He wore black sunglasses and smoked his cigarettes alone, making himself as invisible as possible. Three and a half months into his Sears job, Ruck got a phone call. It was his manager, still holding on. He told him Tom Miller and Bob Boyette wanted to meet with him. Miller and Boyette were a partnership, in life and in business. They were the duo responsible for the classic TGIF sitcoms like Family Matters, Perfect Strangers, and Full House. They owned Friday Night Primetime. And they had a new TV idea called Going Places that they saw Alan Ruck as the lead. Ruck said, uh, yeah, and ripped off his warehouse uniform. Ruck filmed 19 episodes of Going Places, but he says only one was funny. Like Morton's By the Bay, the idea kept changing. People in Ruck's life congratulated him, saying they couldn't wait to watch him Friday nights, and he felt himself deter them. When the show eventually came out, critics had a field day. It was called Going Places. Ruck says they were setting themselves to slaughter with that one. Headlines came out like, Going Places? Going Nowhere. And nowhere Ruck's career would go for 18 months. Ruck landed the odd bit part, but by 1992, he was out of luck and out of money. With two kids to feed, Ruck took whatever job he could get, which, at that time, meant bartending at the Red Onion restaurant in Los Angeles. Ruck was making just enough money to stay alive. Patrons would tell him how much they loved Ferris Bueller as they dropped quarters into the tip jar and Ruck started resenting the only major role he'd ever played. Then he started drinking that tip money. He'd begun drinking around the Biloxi Blues years, usually celebratory after a show, but soon it became so that he drank as much when things went well as he did when times were tough. And times had been tough for a while now. One day, his manager called him, and Ruck was convinced she was calling to drop him as a client. But she didn't. Instead, she told him she was worried about him, that she knew he had a drinking problem, and that if he ever wanted to persevere, he'd need to sober up. And she connected him with resources to do just that. 
Ruck knew two things. One, acting was the only thing he was good at, the only thing he wanted to do, and he was so desperate to make it that he was willing to try anything. And two, if word ever got around that he was problematic on set or in life, the tight-knit community called Hollywood would ostracize him anyway. So he had no choice but to stop drinking. He said he wasn't happy about it. There was a lot of white-knuckling ahead. In 1994, Ruck got a fax from his agent. Audition pages for a Star Trek movie. Ruck figured he'd be trying for a broccoli-headed alien. But they actually cast him as a starship commander. The executive producer said he had a look of someone who could have come from a wealthy, politically connected family. Between the role and the Star Trek conventions that followed, Ruck saw some money come his way for the first time in a long time. And that's when things started to turn around. The next three years would bring about rapid-fire roles for Ruck. First, he landed Speed, a thriller about a young cop tasked with preventing a bomb from exploding aboard a city bus by keeping its speed above 50 miles an hour. The film would star Sandra Bullock, Keanu Reeves, Dennis Hopper, and Jeff Daniels, a hugely successful box office hit that would gross $350 million worldwide, and an impressive 95% on Rotten Tomatoes a handful of years later. The following year, Ruck landed Twister, a film starring Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton about storm chasers developing a tool to predict tornadoes. The director, Jan DeBont, was the same director on Speed. He liked working with Ruck. He called him his lucky charm. And from there, Ruck got an audition for a TV pilot, a new show called Spin City. Spin City would be an ensemble sitcom about the inner workings of City Hall in America's biggest city, New York. It would star Michael J. Fox as the deputy mayor with a gift for spinning any gaff into gold. Ruck came in and auditioned for the creators, and they loved him. So much so, they let him choose between two parts— Whichever he liked best, he'd audition for a second time in front of Michael J. Fox. Ruck chose Stuart Bondick, a narcissist chief of staff who can't maintain a relationship, but does maintain he should really be the deputy mayor. So ABC flew Ruck to New York. He met with Fox and performed the audition, and Ruck said it went very well. Then, at JFK, waiting for his plane home to Los Angeles, he got a call from his manager. Ruck was cast. He said it was like he'd won the lottery. With Michael J. Fox's name attached, not to mention smart, funny writers, it had all the makings of a hit. People around Ruck started congratulating him again. At 40, he landed his big break. And this time, those congratulations weren't premature. Spin City would run for six seasons, Ruck appearing in all 145 episodes, 
with over 10 million viewers per week. Spin City wrapped its final season in 2002. But the following years didn't spell ascension into the Hollywood stratosphere. In 2005, Ruck and his wife divorced. He did a play in New York. He did an episode of Scrubs and an episode of Medium. But he said casting directors kind of forgot about him. In 2008, Ruck remarried actress Marae Enos. And he said he began riding the coattails of his wife's career. He said she would get auditions and people would say, Oh yeah, she's married to that guy. So he started getting brought in to play loser number two. Pilot season came and went, and Ruck didn't land a single role. So he made a pact with himself to accept every one-off part that came his way. That year, Ruck did 10 single episodes of 10 different shows. He said it was almost like having a steady job, except every day was completely different. Ruck got a role in a television show shot in Mexico City called Persons Unknown. But persons would remain unknown. The show aired, but no one saw it. Over the following years, Ruck took on a succession of bit parts. He did two TV movies, single episodes of Hawaii Five-O, NCIS, Boston Legal, Hot in Cleveland, and American Dad. In 2017, he landed a small role in the film War Machine, starring Brad Pitt. Then he landed 10 episodes of The Exorcist TV show. By 2018, Ruck was flying back and forth from Los Angeles to Chicago to shoot The Exorcist. Meanwhile, his wife was shooting 16-hour days for ABC in L.A. and essentially single-parenting their two children at night. Ruck said he wasn't home enough and she was maxed out. So one weekend, Ruck was home. His wife asked him to come to a Mommy and Me music class with their young son. She said, please, Monday morning before you fly to Chicago. So Ruck agreed. He'd make it work and be at the class. Then his phone rang. It was his manager. The casting director for War Machine thought of him for a new part, a prominent role on a new HBO show, and she'd gotten him an audition for Monday morning. So Ruck told his wife about the audition that it was HBO, and she burst into tears. Ruck made a promise to his family. He was already gone far too much, so he decided to forego the big audition. For an hour Monday morning, Ruck left his phone in a cubby and banged drums with his son. When the class was over, he had five missed calls, seven texts, emails popping up like crazy. So he called his manager, who frantically picked up. She said though he missed the audition, he could still go to the executive producer Adam McKay's house. 
Adam McKay is an SNL alum who went on to produce and direct movies like Anchorman, Step Brothers, The Big Short, and Vice. Ruck said he didn't have anything prepared, but his manager said not to worry about it, to just show up at McKay's front door. Here's what Ruck knew. The character, Connor, was the only child from a wealthy father's first marriage. He doesn't work, but he does want to run for president. From that, Ruck deduced that Connor was damaged and he was delusional. So, based on that information and that information alone, Ruck went to Adam McKay's house and improvised a scene. McKay said, That's great, Alan. Thanks a lot. And Ruck left for LAX. By the time he touched down in Chicago, Ruck got the news. Turns out, he did have the look of someone who could have come from a wealthy, politically connected family. He landed the part. The HBO show would be called Succession. What Ruck would soon find out was that Succession was a tragedy satire. Set in New York City, Logan Roy, the ruthless patriarch of the Roy family and self-made billionaire media mogul, is facing the end of his reign and a disappointing line of succession in the form of his four damaged children, all vying for power and validation. Succession would star Brian Cox, Jeremy Strong, Kieran Culkin, Sarah Snook, and Alan Ruck. And it would run for four seasons, the last of which would draw nearly nine million viewers. Ruck said it was hands down the best writing he'd ever encountered. He said it isn't just that it's popular, it's excellent. The show's director, Mark Mylod, said Ruck's understanding of Connor Roy's delusional worldview brought this beautiful soul to the character, in particular in the areas where Ruck was free to improvise. He said you'd give Ruck a freebie and he could run a 10-minute roll of film without ever breaking character. Insider called Succession the best TV show of 2021. NPR said the series produced some of the best hours of TV in years. The Guardian called it one of the best shows out there. And the New York Times called for the series' entry into the television pantheon. As of this writing... The show has earned 13 Emmys, with 75 nominations, ahead of its final Emmys season. And the boy who never quite fit in, who became the man that starred in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that somehow found himself working in the Sears warehouse, who landed Spin City and became a bartender, who acted in 41 single episodes of TV shows received his first ever Emmy nomination today, July 12th, 2023, for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series, just after his 67th birthday. As Ruck put it, he'd waited for this role for 30 years.
If you dive into the archives of this podcast, you'll find one overriding theme. People suffer endless rejection until they get their big break. But there is another form of rejection. At first glance, it appears to be one of the rarest. But judging by the number of emails we get requesting this kind of story, it's more common than you think. I'm talking about rejection that comes after a huge success. As a rule, when you hit it big, doors suddenly fly open for you. You have a track record. People seek you out. They want to touch that magic. But when you look at Alan Ruck's story, he was the co-star in a massively successful film, one of the top ten highest-grossing movies of the year, directed by one of the hottest directors, a film that would be selected for preservation by the Library of Congress. Yet Ruck didn't get any work after Ferris Bueller for an entire year. When he eventually landed a couple of gigs, they went nowhere. So to support his family, he took a job in a Sears warehouse and tended bar. When success comes first and rejection comes second, it can play games with your mind. You wonder if it was a fluke. You worry that you're a one-trick pony and everyone's seen the trick. But success is rarely a straight line. It's more like the letter W, up and down, then up and down again. The important thing is to ride that wave because you never know what's around the corner. Sometimes your greatest success only arrives when all the vectors of your life converge. Your experience intersects with your age and cross-references an opportunity. The tumblers align, and the next thing you know, you've landed succession. Interesting to note that Alan Ruck's character Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off is the only character in the movie who has a transformative arc. Ferris doesn't change, Sloan doesn't change, but Cameron does. He goes from being afraid of everything to being alive and confident. Alan Ruck says he waited 30 years for a show like Succession. Some arcs take a little longer than others. Never, ever give up. I'm not going to sit by as the events that affect me unfold to determine the course of my life. I'm going to take a stand. Cameron Fry. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. We don't regret to inform you our producer is Debbie O'Reilly. Our theme music is by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Tunes provided by APM Music. Major sources for this and all episodes are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting Dirty Dancing from Season 1. Dirty Dancing is one of the most iconic cult classic movies of all time. But back when screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein and producer Linda Gottlieb first pitched the script, it promptly received 43 rejection letters. You can follow our network on social at Apostrophe Pod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to end homelessness.